Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, good evening, everyone. Welcome along to Gateway this evening. So glad that you've taken time out of your busy schedules to be with us. We, we really appreciate that. We don't take it for granted. We're so glad that you're here. Um, as Dan said, we're kicking off a new series this evening. Uh, and over the next few weeks, we're going to be in the Old Testament and uh, particularly looking at the life of King David. Um, just before we do that, uh, there's a number of authors, um, one particular one that I'm thinking of, um, who, who's a really good um, pastor, particularly well-known, but has recently written a book that, um, to be truthful, I find really troubling. Uh, and basically, he's saying that we should absolutely ignore the Old Testament. Just stay away from it. He says that uh, the Old Testament is filled with weird stories and legalistic nonsense, and even people who go back looking at texts that um, are purported at least to prophesy Jesus, he said um, those people who approach the, that, the Old Testament that way, seeking to find Christ in the Old Testament scriptures are simply instances of the Jewish scriptures being hijacked by Christians who are ignoring the original contexts. That is a, a mind-blowing approach to the Old Testament. Uh, and I, I, for one, have major problems with it. I, th I think when we read the scriptures, what we understand is it's like a four or five act play. And to simply pick up the story in the New Testament is like stepping into the play in act four and not having any understanding of what has gone on before. Um, it, it, the, the Old Testament should be part of our reading. And I think there are at least, at the very least, two good reasons for us as Christ followers to read the Old Testament. Number one is that the Old Testament is primarily intended actually to be a revelation of Jesus. Richard B. Hayes in his book, Reading Backwards, says the Gospels teach us how to read the Old Testament and at the same time, the Old Testament teaches us how to read the Gospels. And what he's effectively saying is just what I said, that, that Jesus is all the way through the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus, having risen from the dead, is now walking to Emmaus with two disciples. And on the road to Emmaus, if you've read the story, in verse 27, he, he begins to explain the scriptures to them and says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interprets to them the things written about himself and all the scriptures. So Jesus would say to the author who said, don't go into the Old Testament because Christ isn't in there. And if you go into the Old Testament to try and find him, you're simply hijacking the Jewish scriptures. I think Jesus would have something to say about that. He's saying, look, in Moses, which is the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and in the prophets and, and the rest of the Old Testament, it's about me. In John chapter 5, verse 39, the message translation, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, you have your heads in your Bibles. Now, their Bible, of course, was the Old Testament. He said, you have your heads in the Bible constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there, but you miss the forest for the trees, he said. These scriptures are all about me. So the idea that we can just jettison the Old Testament, cut it off because it's 
at times difficult. Um, it, it doesn't seem to me, at least, to be what Jesus is saying here. When we study David's life, one of the ways that we can study it is see that David's life speaks beyond himself. First and foremost, as we look at David's life, we understand that the Scripture is speaking of one who is greater than David. One of the titles of the Messiah was that he was the son of David. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 22 and verse 16, he's called the offspring of David. So when you read the story of David with these, if I can use this term, Christological lenses, you read it very differently than just simply David's story. It's a story that casts a shadow, and that shadow is Christ-like in its shape. When you read, for example, the story of David and Goliath, rather than just seeing it as a moralistic story, a bit like Aesop's fable with a kind of the bigger they are, the harder they fall type lesson, what we see when we use that Christological lens is a battle between representative champions. In such a battle, the fate of the nation rested on the shoulders of the champion. Each nation's fate was embodied in the person of their champion. What happens to the champion happens to all. So in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 9, Goliath says, If your man is able to kill me, then we, the Philistines, will be your slaves. If I kill him, then you must be our slaves. Whatever happens to the champion happens to to all that the champion represent. When you look at that story through the Christological lens, what you see is Jesus, the greater David, sent by the Father, because David was told to go down to the battle by his father. When he gets there, he's rejected and mocked by his brothers. Jesus, sent by the Father, comes despised by his brethren, but his victory over the previously undefeated champion of death becomes your victory, becomes my victory. And that's what Romans chapter 5 is all about. Because Jesus died for us, we embodied in him, died and rose again in victory. This is, this is a story that's more than just the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Jesus is the greater David. Just as he said in the New Testament, he was greater than Solomon. Remember he said, Queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth to seek out the wisdom of Solomon, and there is one among you who is greater than Solomon. On another occasion, he says, the Ninevites heard the preaching of Jonah, but I tell you, there's one among you who's greater than Jonah. On another occasion, he says, there's one among you that's greater than the temple. All of these stories, whether it's Solomon, David, Jonah, or the temple and all its institutions and sacrifices, speak of Jesus. And as you look at the Old Testament through that Christological lens, it just opens up to you. Don't jettison the Old Testament. It's part one, two, and three of that play. A second reason for looking at the Old Testament is that the stories in general, and in this case, the story of David specifically, are intended to teach you lessons by which God can reveal both his character and his methods for dealing with, for forming and fashioning a man or woman of God. I trust that you're here because you want to be that. As you look at the story of David, both you see God's heart and the tools that he uses to fashion a man or woman of God. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. When he's speaking about Old Testament Israel, he said, these things become our examples. 
<clears throat> the Greek word that's translated by our English word example is the word topos, from which we get our English word topography. And for those of you who are old enough to remember, topographical maps. Now, we don't use topographical maps now because we use the Google app. But topographical maps were the way people would get the lay of the land when they were unfamiliar with it. They would unroll this big topographical map and it would tell them where the hills are, where the, where the valleys were. When, when we see the Old Testament, what we get is a topographical layout of how God deals with people. In verse 11 and 1 Corinthians 10 says that too. Now all these things uh, happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the age has come. So the Old Testament is valuable beyond measure for seeing Christ and understanding where the story is going and for seeing the heart of God and the way that he deals with men and women as he seeks to fashion uh, them in his image. When James is talking about Job. He, he says, when you study Job's life, what you need to see is the teleos, the, the end that God had in mind as he's dealing with Job. It wasn't just an Old Testament story that's weird. James chapter 5 verse 11 says, you've heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. In the story of Job, you see something of God's heart and something of his purposes. Now, as we look at David, it is the second approach that we are going to be taking. We're going to be looking at David's life. We will see hints through that Christological lens, but it isn't going to be the primary focus of this study. What I want to do is look at David and see how God fashions a man or a woman of God. Now, when you do look at David's life, there's lots of ways you could approach it. Um, David's life can easily be divided into phases or stages during which God was doing certain things and teaching him particular lessons. And one way of identifying those phases and, and those stages is by looking at the geography of David's life. As you, as you study David's life, you'll see that there are certain geographical locations that stand out and that serve as boundary markers in his spiritual journey. Uh, I've identified five. First of all, there's Bethlehem, the geographical location of David's early life. Secondly, there's Gibeah. That was the location of Saul's court. You can see that in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 34. And that geographical location was characterized by David's early successes. It was here that he became Saul's court musician, his armor bearer, the slayer of Goliath, and a kind of presidential aide. And God uses David in those early years significantly. He becomes a national hero, and God gives him a good deal of success in his early life. Those successes, by the way, serve to test his heart. Proverbs 27 verse 21 says, the purity of gold and silver is tested by putting them in the fire. The purity of a human heart is tested by giving them a little fame. And God gives David a little fame and begins to test his heart. The third place, so we've got Bethlehem, we've got Gibeah. Thirdly, you've got the cave of Adullam. David's early successes created incredible relational tension with Saul. Saul's incredibly deep insecurity manifests itself and he becomes very jealous of David's success and tries to destroy him. David, as you know, is forced to flee for his life and he 
hides in the wilderness in a place called the Cave of Adullam. During this phase of David's life, God is dealing with him and testing him and training him through hardship and difficulties. The fourth place is Hebron. Hebron represents the partial fulfillment of the things that God had promised David. God had said, you're going to be king over Israel. In Hebron, he's crowned king, but only over the tribe of Judah. During this time, Saul is killed in battle, and David faces the test of whether he will reach out for the immediate fulfillment of all that God has spoken over his life in his own strength, or whether he will wait God's timing to advance him. And finally, there's Zion. And here David comes to the full release of all that God has promised him. And David has to learn to live in the fulfillment of his dream in a godly and unselfish manner. And we see that that is an incredibly difficult task, and we get some understanding of why God has trained him so relentlessly in his early years. So in our first message, I want to look at the geographical location of Bethlehem. What are the lessons that David learned in Bethlehem? You know, there's so much we can learn from these early years, from the way that David functions after he is anointed as the new king by Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, we have a very familiar story. Um, God speaks to Samuel and tells him that he's rejected Saul and that he's to go to Jesse's house in Bethlehem, and among Jesse's son, there is uh, one who will be the new king. So Samuel goes to Jesse's house, and the sons of Samuel are paraded before him. The first one is Eliab. He's tall, he's handsome, he's good-looking, he's everything that Saul would think a king should be, and he says, surely this must be the one. And you can almost hear God saying, for goodness sake, what did you think happened to Saul? Saul was head and shoulders above everybody in Israel, a phenomenally good-looking man, and yet his heart was completely unprepared. And, And it seems like Samuel hasn't learned the lesson. And God has to say to him, look, don't look on the outside. I'm not looking at the outside. I'm looking at the heart. So the seven sons of Jesse are paraded, and God says it's none of them. So Samuel's a little confused and asks Jesse, is there another boy? The the eighth son, David, the runt of the litter, is so insignificant that he hasn't been invited to the feast. But Samuel says, we're not going ahead until he comes. He comes, and the Lord says, he's it. So in verse 13 of that chapter, Samuel took a horn full of olive oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord, it says, rushed on David from that day forward. One author suggests that the phrase, in the midst of his brothers, should actually be translated from the midst of his brothers. And they give two complete idea, completely different ideas. To anoint someone in the midst of his brothers suggests that all his brothers are standing around watching it. To anoint somebody from the midst of his brothers suggests that this anointing somehow pulls him away from his brothers and makes him very, very different. And can I suggest to you that actually probably both of them are true. He was anointed in the midst physically of his brothers, but that anointing set him apart and made him different. There is something about the call of God that comes on a person's life, and when that anointing touches them, they're called to difference. We don't do difference very well. We want to be much, you know, we, 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 we long to be, you know, one of the crowd, one of the group, one of the club. But there is something about the anointing that sets us apart. 
you know, of Joseph. It was said, they shall be upon the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. Same thing happened to Joseph as happened to David. The call of the Lord came upon him, and it didn't actually win friends for him and influence people. It actually caused the jealousy of a number of people to rise up against him. There's something about the anointing. We covet it, but you know what? Sometimes we don't know what we're coveting. Because that thing, that anointing, makes us different. It separates us. You know, Paul says in the opening chapter of Romans that he was separated from his mother's womb. And, and the, the Greek word has the idea of being off-horizoned. His horizons were changed by that anointing that came on him and separated him. The, anoint, the, the horizons that were his previously were changed by his encounter with God, by the call of God. When the call of God comes on your life, it changes your horizons. It makes you different. So David is anointed from the midst of his brethren. Now, what's he going to do? How's he going to respond to this incredible anointing, this separating anointing? Well, you read the story, and what he doesn't do is rush out and get business cards printed. He doesn't get T-shirts printed. He doesn't order a kingly chariot off trade me. He doesn't begin to get a group of followers around him, and he clearly has no plan to go and inform Saul of his impending removal from the kingly office. What he does is simply go back to the sheep. He goes back to the task of being a shepherd. Outwardly, if you were looking at this situation, absolutely nothing has changed by this anointing. His circumstances remain the same. He's still out in the back paddocks of Bethlehem. He continues to shepherd a small flock in what the Americans would call the boondocks, the Aussies would call the outbacks, and we would call the sticks or the wop-wops. Just way out the back paddocks. And yet... Bethlehem, the back paddocks of Bethlehem are the first training ground for this future king. And I'd like to suggest to you that Bethlehem awaits each of us who have the call of God on our lives. There will always be a Bethlehem, the place where God begins to teach you the ABCs of what it means to be a man or woman after God's heart. What I'd like to do briefly tonight is give you four things that God used to train and shape David during the Bethlehem phase of his development, and you're going to love them. Number one, solitude. Number two, obscurity. Number three, monotony. Number four, reality. Anybody want to sign up? Didn't think so. You know, we're not keen on any of those things. Number one, solitude. David learned many of his life's major lessons while he's alone in the wilderness before he could be trusted with the responsibilities and rewards of the public limelight. As a shepherd, he spent many hours alone with the sheep. You know, shepherds in that time could be out seeking pasture for weeks at a time, during which time they might not actually see another human being. F.B. Meyer, in his book on David, says nature was his nurse, his companion, and his teacher. There were long periods of solitude. You know what? Solitude is not a concept that we postmoderns know about or appreciate. We certainly don't cherish them cherish it. Most of us live in a very populated world of activity and noise. We're woken by radio alarms. We eat breakfast watching breakfast television. Um, you know, from the moment we awake, we are bombarded by a constant stream of voices and noises. We drive with our radios on. We walk or run with our iPhones plugged into our headphones. We are rarely alone, and even more rarely are we silent. 
Charles Swindoll has a rasping comment, and you can take it or leave it, but he says this, anyone who has or who must have superficial sounds to survive lacks depth. If you can't stand to be alone with yourself, you have deep, unresolved conflicts in your inner life. Wow, that's worth sitting about and thinking on. Don't mistake solitude for loneliness. They aren't the same thing. Loneliness is an inner emptiness. Solitude can actually be a way and the means to inner fulfillment. Solitude isn't primarily about geography. It isn't just about a place, although having a place oftentimes is a great help in achieving it. Solitude actually is a state of heart and mind. It's the inner quietness that comes uh, and it can actually be practiced in the midst of a crowd. It's an inner attentiveness to the divine presence. Now, I, I would suggest that that inner attentiveness is often developed, at least initially, by seasons of solitude and aloneness. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see him retreating for 40 days into the wilderness. And that was a practice. That was an ethos that, you, that Jesus maintained throughout his ministry. In Luke chapter 5, verse 16, it says, So he uh, himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. In the Greek tenses, that reads, He was retreating into the wilderness and praying. This wasn't a one-off event. It was the continuing ethos, the continuing pattern of his life. He would get alone. There would be seasons of solitude and silence. Solitude has nurturing qualities of its own. It has a way of putting us in touch with deep heart issues. If you find that God has placed you in a season of solitude, can I suggest to you that you don't resent it, you don't run from it, you don't fight it, you actually use it. There may come a time, there may well come a time when you wished you could have it back. I suspect many famous people would give their fortune to be able to retreat from the public glare and enjoy genuine solitude again. You know, it's been said of our celebrity culture that celebrities are people who strive to become famous and then wear sunglasses so they can't be recognized. Obscure, uh, uh, solitude. Obscurity is the second one. Very similar to the first, they're twins in a way they overlap. Obscurity is another tool in God's toolbox whereby he trains and shapes those who he calls and anoints. They are at first, more often than not, unknown, unseen, unappreciated, unapplauded. And in the relentless demands of obscurity, when nobody sees you, character is formed and shaped. And we learn to serve, not for the applause of the many, but for the endorsement of the one. I told a story on myself this morning. You know, when I first came into, uh, I, I was in ministry in Martin for a number of years, and then at 29 years of age, Karen and I got called to Cambridge. And we went to a very small church, pastoring probably, I don't know, 35, 45 people for, um, for uh, uh, several years. And I remember one Sunday night, um, we, we used to meet in the senior citizens hall. There was kind of an auditorium, and out the back there was a smaller room. And, and I was out in the smaller room just waiting for people to come, pacing up and down, praying about the message that I had spent hours and hours over. And that night, as we were about to start, there's 12 people out there, four of whom are my family. So one third of them um, are, are, are 
are Barry's and, and there's uh, eight other people. That included the musicians. And, and I'm, I'm th- saying, Lord, you know, I've spent hours on this. And there's blinking eight people, 12 people all together, you know, kind of kicking stones and thinking, I was made for bigger things. Have you ever read that golden book, uh, Scuffy the Tugboat? Any parent read to their children Scuffy the Tugboat? Three of us, okay. Put it on your reading list, okay? (laughs) You can buy it from Countdown. Take you two and a half minutes to read it. It's about a little boat that thought he was made for bigger things. And as I'm reading this book to my kids, I'm thinking, I've got a Scuffy syndrome. I think I'm made for bigger things. If God actually put me in bigger things, I'd be completely out of my debt, as Scuffy found out. Now you're really interested in this book, Scuffy, aren't you? You've got to read it. Anyway, I'm, I'm pacing backwards and forwards saying, Lord, you know, gee, I've worked hard on this as eight people. And I, he had a conversation with me just in my thoughts. And he said, you'd be really thrilled if there was 1,200 people out there instead of 12, wouldn't you? And, and you know... You know how when you are using your thinking and arguments to yourself, it sounds really impressive and watertight, and when God asks you a question, it kind of just fades away, and you're looking a real idiot, and that's how I felt, because it was like, I've worked really hard, and there should be more people, and God just says, you would really be amped if there were 1,200 people, wouldn't you? And I sort of hung my head and said, yeah, I guess I would be, Lord. And he said, why don't you preach to the 12 as if there's 1,200? And maybe, maybe one day, if your faithful was small, who knows? I tell you what, it changed me. And I went out there and I gave my very best for 12 people. It's in the obscurity that God shows you in a mirror what motivates you. And, and it's there that you learn to serve, not for the applause of the many, but for the endorsement of the one. All of God's choicest servants had seasons of both solitude and obscurity. Moses is 40 years in the backside of a desert. Joseph is 13 years in a prison. John the Baptist grows up in the wilderness. Paul is 14 years in the Arabian desert, and Jesus is 30 years in a carpenter shop in Nazareth. You won't escape it. God loves you too much to thrust you into the limelight without preparing you. The next one you're going to be thrilled about, it's monotony. What a horrible word for us postmoderns. In our fast-paced, adrenaline-addicted culture, monotony is the pits. And we pride ourselves, don't we, as of being on-the-go people, 24-7 thrills, overseas trips, extreme sports, thrilling romances, and if we can't get our thrills naturally, then we'll get it with party pills or some other synthetic substance. God, on the other hand, I might say, is not averse to monotony in order to shape his servants. It isn't because he's boring, by the way. God can give you more thrills for your bucks than anything that this world can offer with no hangover. You won't wake up in the morning and say, my God, why did I do it? Why was I a Christian last night? (laughs) He'll thrill your heart and you won't wake up with a headache. But he uses monotony and he trains us because it's here that we find out who we truly are without all the accoutrements and the excitement. And it's in the ordinary, 
the menial, the insignificant, and the uneventful, the routine of our daily lives that really disclose who we are. And I want to tell you that should be a word of real encouragement, for example, to young mums or, or, or stay-at-home dads who've got little children and wonder, where's my days going? And every day is made up of breakfast, of lunch, of changing nappies, of having naps, of, of being exhausted, and then the next day I wake up and I go through the whole thing all over again. What on earth is this about? It's in those situations that God discloses who we really are. You know, shepherding, for the most part, was incredibly routine. One day merged into another with what could have been soul-numbing boredom for David. Okay, sure, there were some adrenaline-pumping moments of excitement and action. He killed a lion and a bear. But that wasn't an everyday occurrence. It wasn't every week. As far as we know, in six or seven years, there was one lion and one bear. So in 2,555 days, there's two days of adrenaline-pumping excitement, and the rest is simply same old, same old. But in the routine, monotonous cycle of our lives, it's there that we establish the patterns of our lives that will determine how we react in the major epoch-making moments that come our way. It's, it's when you are serving in the quiet places that you're actually fashioning the character that will manifest itself down the line. Somebody once asked the Duke of Wellington about the Battle of Waterloo, and he said the Battle of Waterloo was won on the fields of Eton, by which he meant it was when I was at school that these characteristics were fashioned and formed that led to the decisions that I made at Waterloo. And somebody also said that it was in the far-removed boyhood of, Jesus, of, of Judas that Jesus was betrayed. In other words, it was the ethos that Judas allowed to be fashioned around his life that made him the thief and the betrayer ultimately. What you are in those quiet moments is actually fashioning you. There's no such thing as an overnight success. Most overnight successes are 20 years in the making. An athlete doesn't just win a gold medal in the arena before thousands, millions watching on TV. They win it in the obscurity and the monotony of country lanes where running stretches of country road when no one is watching, battling the loneliness, the boredom, and the pain of the monotonous miles. The cricketer who throws down the stumps from side on to win a one-day match does so because they have done it a thousand times before on a deserted practice ground when nobody was watching. Don't despise and run from the mundane dimension of, dimensions of your lives. They are the training ground for your future. I've got a book in my library called 10,000 Hours, and the thesis of that book is that anybody who makes it in the world, whether it's Bill Gates in terms of IT or Dan Carter in terms of kicking a rugby ball off a tee, have all served their apprenticeship and the apprenticeship lasts minimum 10,000 hours. It's like I said, they're not overnight successes. They've paid their dues in the monotony, in the obscurity, in the solitude. Don't run from it. The fourth instrument that God uses at Bethlehem to shape you, David and you is, is like the third, just as the second was like the first. They are peers. 
Solitude and obscurity go together, and so do monotony and reality. You know, David isn't sitting out in the wilderness in some mystic haze under the anointing, composing songs, and having incredible encounters with God every second day, teaching his sheep to eat on their hind legs. He may have had some encounters during that seven-year period. We know that he composed some songs about that season and in that season, but for the most part, he lived the reality of a shepherd's existence. It was mundane at times. At times, it was dangerous. He had to cope with the freezing temperatures of the night and the blistering temperatures of the day, leading a group of recalcitrant sheep who didn't give a toss that he was the Lord's anointed. That was his reality. And God uses, his re, our, uh, God uses our realities and not our illusions to train us. So solitude, obscurity, monotony, reality. That's what David was shaped by in that early season at Bethlehem. Let me finish by commenting on one thing that I think David learned. He learned to be faithful in seemingly small, insignificant natural things. Bethlehem is the place where you learn to be faithful in natural small things. You can't help noticing as you read David's story how diligent he is in small matters that, don't, that, that some people would say really don't matter that much. I mean, he protected his sheep when it would have been much easier and safer to let the lion and the bear have them, or at least have one of them. Nobody saw what was happening he could have easily made an excuse for the loss, but he didn't. He took on the bear and he took on the lion. That's the heart of a true shepherd. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 20, it says, David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper, got up and went as Jesse, his father, had commanded him. Jesse says, David, I want you to go down to the battle site, see how your brothers are getting on. It must have been good news for David. It's a break in the boredom and the monotony and the solitude, so he's off. But before he's off, he leaves his sheep in the hands of a, she of, of a keeper. He doesn't just drop his responsibilities and run off to something more exciting and more, uh, you know, attention grabbing. He, he's got responsibilities and he's faithful with those responsibilities. He makes sure that that flock is kept. A little later on in that chapter, David left his baggage in the hands of a keeper of the baggage and ran to the army and came and breeded his greeted his brothers. He's really faithful and diligent with small things that most people would say, ah, it doesn't matter. Come on, doesn't matter. What did to David? Can I suggest to you that our business is not to strive for increased opportunities, but our business is to be faithful in the opportunities that we do have, and then leave God to increase the opportunities if he wants to. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about going deep and allowing God, if he wants to, to let us go wide or high. Helen Keller once said, I long to accomplish a great and noble task, but it is my chief duty to accomplish small tasks as if they were great and noble. Friends, we can't all do great things, but we can do small things with a spirit of greatness. And that's about being really diligent with our responsibilities, however small they seem to be in your sight, however insignificant they seem to be in your sight. If you're asked at work to do certain things and you think, ah, oh, whatever, just, that's ridiculous. I'm sorry. But unless you're being asked to do something that violates integrity or honesty, you know what? 
you should do it. And you should do it with a spirit of greatness. Because there is somebody who's watching. You say, well, nobody sees, nobody cares. Yes, there is somebody who sees and there is somebody who cares. And we are serving for the endorsement of the one, not the applause of the many. And it does matter to him. You listen to what he says. Luke chapter 16, verses 10 through 12. He who is faithful in least is also faithful in much. He who is unjust in the least is also unjust in the much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in that which another is another's, who shall give you that which you, uh, uh, that, who shall give you that which is your own? Jesus points out three principles of faithfulness. Number one, if we aren't faithful in the little things, the least things, he says, you won't be faithful in much. You know, over the years, I've had people come to me and say, Don, if you'll open up doors for me, I'll show you what I'm made of. I have a stock answer, and it goes like this. If you'll show me what you're made of, I may open up doors for you. If you're unfaithful in little bits, then, then I know for sure if I give you a lot, you're going to make a hash of it. Because Jesus said, if you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. If you aren't in little, guess what? That's worth really meditating on and thinking on. Secondly, why Jesus says this, I'm not quite sure, but he says, your money. It's going, oh yeah, preachers, they're always on about that. This isn't me. This is Jesus. Okay? Deal with it. He says, by the way, your money. If you aren't faithful with that, don't anticipate that I'll give you spiritual riches. Not going to happen. You be faithful there, and that will follow. Third thing. Move on before I get in trouble. If you can't be trusted in that which belongs to another, God will not give you your own. You know, over the years, I've had a lot of people come to me, and they're serving in a certain situation, and they'll say something along these lines to me. Don, I'm serving somebody whose vision and dreams really not my own. And, and you know, they ask me to do things, and I just, you know, ah, oh, greats, just greats. And I, and I just think, I don't want to do it. That's not the way I would do it. I say to them, are you being asked to do something immoral, uh, illegal, dishonest? No, 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 it's none of those things. It's just that their dream isn't my dream. I just say, well, at this present moment in your life, unless you are feel, feel called to go somewhere else, you serve that dream. Because if you will serve that which belongs to another, God will give you your own. If you don't serve that which belongs to another, he says, I will not give you your own. That, that's kind of bone-shaking. You know, I, I remember in my early ministry, and I won't take time to tell you the story, but I served in a church, and I served a leader whose vision was so completely different to my own. And uh, it, it was an incredible strain. There were times when I just thought, man, I wouldn't do that. That is not the way I would do it. But provided it wasn't illegal, dishonest, or immoral, I thought it's just a different way of doing it. I'm here to serve, and I, I tried to the best of my ability to serve and to, and, to, and to put my shoulder to that vision and push it forward, knowing ultimately that I could never 
be that or do that myself. But I, I really think there's a principle. If you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. If you're unfaithful with money, God's not going to give you true riches. If you'll serve that which belongs to another, God will give you your own. David served the community in looking after their sheep. And then in Psalm 78, at the very end, it says God took him from the sheepfold to shepherd his people Israel because he'd been faithful in that which belonged to another. God says, I want you to shepherd my people. This is your, this is your field. These are your people. These are the lessons that David learned in Bethlehem. And every single one of us will have a Bethlehem. I suspect that until we learn the lessons of Bethlehem, the lessons of Gibeah and, and uh, Adullam and Hebron, we, we aren't going to get there. It's do not pass go, do not collect $200. Serve it. Pass the tests. Somebody says you don't fail God's tests, you just get to resit them. And I suspect that that's true for a lot of us. The Lessons of Bethlehem. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.